Looking at election results this month, did you feel a little bit like I told you so? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's I don't think I'm the only historian who tries really hard not to say I told you so out loud. <laughs> Adam Lotz is a historian of the U.S. educational system. Like, you know, every other uh, historian, um, I try not to break out in sweat marks when I hear someone say the word unprecedented. <laughs> You're like, it's all precedented. <laughs> well, pretty much. For Adam, what was especially precedented on Election Day was the way conservative educational ideas, which have really animated Republican politics over the last couple of years, seemed to lose at the ballot box. Several political groups endorse various candidates in the race, but now the board will be held by a progressive majority. You may have noticed this. In one election after another, candidates who ran for school board on a platform of parental rights tanked. These were candidates in Pennsylvania, in Iowa. These were candidates who were endorsed by the notorious mama bears at Moms for Liberty. The group did successfully push for book bans, school vouchers, barring teaching about LGBTQ plus topics, but performed poorly on election night. And while this seemed like a real neck wrench to me, it made perfect sense to Adam. He spent the last year or two writing article after article with headlines like, Moms for Liberty is riding high. It should beware what comes next. And 2022 saw conservative gains on education issues, but they may be short-lived. I wanted to know what had made him so sure of himself. He said, it's simple. There's a pattern here. When large groups, you know, not just people who consider themselves progressive or conservative, but, you know, the broad middle, when they have a chance to examine the, the accusations that, that are being made against public schools, when they have a year and a half to examine them, they tend to reject them because they're just not true. The charges that are being made against schools are just not accurate, and voters, voters reject them. To prove his case, Adam says, just look to West Virginia. When a new multicultural curriculum got rolled out in the state capitol, it sparked outrage. A school board member named Alice Moore encouraged parents to push back, got lots of attention in the process. And Alice Moore sparked this fight in 1974. She was um, very much a proto-mom for liberty in both what she expected out of public schools and the shape that she thought public schools should take. Like, for example, an E.E. E. Cummings poem she objected to, I like my body when it is with your body. You know, she said, our public school kids, even high school kids, this is too much sex. Now, don't tell me that these books don't tell them to go out and join the revolution. I've read too much of it. They tell them to destroy the Constitution. And uh, when the state had a new set of textbooks, she said, no, these are terrible. They have, they're going to turn white kids, this is what she said, turn white kids into racists by having them read these black authors. Oh, my gosh. That just sounds so, it's exactly the same thing. Right? And her campaign poster said, I am standing for parents' rights. Temperatures were running high. Members of the school board got beat up at a meeting. Parents kept their kids at home, boycotting the schools. The Ku Klux Klan even got involved. The school superintendent was in hiding, didn't sleep in the same place any, any two nights in a row. The school board building got dynamited uh, at night. You know, no one was hurt, but still. In West Virginia, what happened with the school board? Like, did it become very conservative or did it flip to more liberal? 
Yeah, it, in fact, Alice Moore herself was reelected, but the other conservatives were voted out in favor of, you know, not progressive candidates, but just middle of the road candidates. So the firebrands were, for the most part, out, same way they were this year. But Adam says there are historical lessons that go beyond election results because the shadow of these kinds of fights turns out to be long. It exerts this kind of pall over learning for a long time, and not just in Kanawha County, but around the country, where plenty of conservatives agreed with Alice Moore. And is that pall kind of what you're worried about now? Absolutely. Today on the show, what history will tell you about what Moms for Liberty's election losses really mean. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Before we got too deep into the history, I asked Adam to take me inside one school district that saw big changes on Election Day this year. To him, what happened in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, seemed like a good place to start. Democrats just took control of the county's Penridge School Board by sweeping all five open seats. This was surprising because parental rights groups had had a ton of success there in recent years. They'd won control of the board in 2021, and they didn't waste a whole lot of time. They paid a political consultant to remake the social studies curriculum using the ultra-conservative 1776 curriculum from right-wing Hillsdale College as a guide. This is what voters don't want. Uh, The same thing happened in Tennessee when Governor Bill Lee tried to pour millions, tens of millions of of state dollars into a new series of, of Hillsdale curriculum charters. It happened in Arizona back in 2017, 2018, when the state superintendent of instruction tried to infuse Hillsdale science curriculum. Uh, This is the pattern. When parents find out, when voters find out about these attempts, which sometimes fly under the radar, the school politics are actually, you know, like a heavily ballasted ship. They tend to center themselves about things that we can all agree on. And Americans don't all agree on the kind of ideas Hillsdale wants to put into its curriculum. What are those ideas? Can you just lay them out? Well, sure. All of the Hillsdale curriculum puts a little, you know, further reading for teachers, and it says, please read the 1776 Commission Report. And the 1776 Commission Report is a really remarkable document. It blames a shadow government that has taken over the United States. They think 
teachers should teach children that this shadow government is putting in place things like environmental regulations, civil rights laws, you know, the, the kinds of um, progressive changes that have been sort of mainstream since the 1960s. It's like talking about the deep state, but like with a even more conspiratorial twist. Yeah. Adam says, you'd be forgiven for watching what played out in Bucks County and thinking, huh, it really seems like there's a conservative push to control public schools. But looking at the last few years through the lens of history gives him a different perspective. Oh, the fight for conservative control of public schools, that's been over. Uh, That ended somewhere maybe 1933. Um, Conservatives, the kind of conservatives that we're seeing now and that we saw out of the Trump White House, um, that kind of make America great conservatism, they tried hard and made a run to actually control public schools back in the 1920s. But they lost. They lost then, and they've been retreating ever since. To explain what Adam means when he says conservatives are in retreat, it's worth returning to that fight from 100 years back. At the time, the scary thing kids were learning in school was not about race or gender. The term back then was evolution. It became a sort of catch-all term for everything that a certain set of conservatives didn't like. So evolution was banned in five states, 37 bills considered throughout the 20s to ban evolution in a variety of places, including uh, U.S. Congress talked about banning evolution for Washington, D.C. schools. When I read your writing about this time, I was struck by how similar the language felt to the language around critical race theory, gender, those kinds of things. Like it was using the language of evolution is being drilled into our boys and girls during the most susceptible, dangerous age of their lives. It was, you know, talking about how highbrow people were you know, injecting this mandatory subject into public schools. It just sounded exactly like what I've been hearing over the last couple of years. Absolutely, including the cry of parents' rights. We, we parents have the ultimate right to control what our kids learn in schools. So that argument has been very politically potent for 100 years. In the 20s, they were banning ideas like evolution but they're also banning all private schools entirely. The state of Oregon actually passed a law banning private schools. And um, a a number of states, eight states, were considering 14 similar bills to ban all private education entirely. And the idea was this was when conservatives actually fought to control American public education. They wanted everyone in public schools so that they could control exactly what America's kids were going to learn. Hmm. They were nervous that private schools would teach kids things that they were worried about. Oh, how the tables have turned. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And this is why I think from the 100 year perspective, talk about conservatives seizing control of public education. No, conservatives have been fighting for smaller and smaller islands of control for 100 years. And now many of them have retreated to their, their literal house as their castle. Homeschooling homeschooling and parental rights to veto things that are required of us by law. You've written about how this fight in the 1920s was kind of interesting because while a few states outlawed the teaching of evolution, textbook publishers actually didn't change what they were doing. Yeah. And the reaction in the case of evolution was that generally people teachers, I mean, and families and school boards and principals and textbook companies, they just made it muddier and messier. Like instead of directly teaching kids about evolution, 
textbooks told them about development. You know, so instead of saying, uh, here's Charles Darwin's ideas of natural selection, they said scientists have many ideas of where a species came from. So the, the damage in all these cases is really heartbreaking because it's to what kids get to learn. Uh, it, it only went to the Supreme Court in 1968. 40 years later. Right, but it went there because throughout that time, um, pl states like Tennessee and Arkansas, places that had passed these anti-evolution laws, they weren't actually enforcing the laws at all. In fact, uh, the case in 1968, uh, Susan Epperson, a teacher, um, just pointed out the obvious, and it had been obvious for decades, the, the, the textbook that she had to use taught evolution, but the state banned the teaching of evolution. And so she went to the courts to be like, uh, what do I do here? <laughs> how, do, how do I teach something that the state says I must teach that the state also says I must not teach? I, I'm, str I'm struck by how long it took. Just the fact that like, even when there's resistance, even when things aren't being enforced, it just is a mess for decades. I think um, I think you've just described uh, America's school politics in the 20th century, a mess for decades. After the break, what can history teach us about where this fight is headed? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. So in your opinion... Fights over education, they're kind of baked into U.S. history. What elements existed in the past couple of years that allowed this most recent iteration to take root and flourish? So anytime there's stress, these fights break out. Uh, the stresses now are, are pretty obvious. You know, the pandemic put a, a, a very novel and, and impossible stress on our public school systems. 
you know, all at once, kids, kids literally didn't have a place to go during the day. Um, and all at once, school leaders were stuck in this impossible position of deciding and, and solving a problem that, you know, no one else, you know, from Anthony Fauci all down, no one else could solve, you know, how do we agree on the proper way to handle this with masks and vaccines and mandatory vaccines and, you know, all, all these questions were left in the hands of, you know, teachers and principals and parents in an intensely angry uh, situation. But there's a second thing that we really can't ignore. In 2016, when all of a sudden, to everyone's surprise, you have this president, this Oval Office occupant, who is saying the slogans of this conservative minority. And all of a sudden, it seems like um, this long retreat might have just flipped. And now maybe you know this particular kind of identity as an American might be back in charge again. So people were feeling empowered, and then all of a sudden they were feeling stressed. Stressed and empowered at the same time makes for a dangerous cocktail. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can use history to explain what happens now in the, if you want to call it, cleanup phase of this earthquake of parental rights. And I ask that because I was really struck when we spoke about the evolution stuff, just how long it took to actually get, you know, an answer from the Supreme Court about, uh, can we teach evolution here? What's going on? <laughs> and, and I wonder if you think, even though this particular moment of very conservative people charging into school board meetings may be dying down, whether we're actually going to see a decade or two of sorting through the wreckage here. Yeah, yeah. Well, that has been the pattern. Um, you know, the public schools, uh, I know they get accused by conservatives of being these, you know, left-wing institutions trying to brainwash kids into anti-racism and LGBTQ inclusion. Uh, but in, in, in fact, in practice, both historically and today, uh, public schools tend to be a very um, traditional type of institution. They tend to you know, mostly avoid controversy. So this is why the politics of fear works so well at first, is because all you have to do is make an idea seem controversial and public schools will back away from it. So as you, as you mentioned with evolution, you don't need a law, although a lot of states pass laws, banning evolution to make teachers nervous about teaching evolution. Same thing now. Some states have passed these, uh, you know, Stop Woke Act and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so in some states, it's, you know, illegal for teachers to teach kids certain ideas about history and, uh, and literature. But even where there isn't those laws, just having the headlines makes teachers and, and school principals wonder um, if certain ideas uh, should be avoided simply because they're controversial. Most school principals, they just want their kids, you know, the students to have a good education. They want the families to be happy and they want to figure out how to patch the holes in their budget. And that's where these politics, in my opinion, have done the most damage and will continue to do the most damage. Hmm. I guess until in a decade or two, you get a teacher who's like, hold it. <laughs> what can I do here? 
And by then, the most of the furor has died down and it goes through the courts. Well, and this is a thing that should, should, it makes me the most optimistic. I think it should make everyone the most optimistic. Whatever your politics about, you know, our students getting the best education. The good news is that when parents trust their teachers, when they know their students, their kids' teachers, they are way more open to all kinds of allegedly controversial ideas in their classrooms. So the same thing holds true today. Uh, By and large, at least according to Gallup, by and large, Americans think American public schools are terrible, but they think their children's public schools are very good. (laughs) We're so weird. Well, it's no, it's because they know the teachers. They know, um, they trust the teachers more or less. Obviously, not always, but by and large, you know, in about 80% range, most respondents to polls these days say what people have been saying for 100 years. I'm nervous about questions like sexuality and race. I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, these ideas of vaccination and, and what the government should do. I, I don't know what to think about all these issues. But I do believe that my local school, the one that I went to, uh, maybe the one that I go to when I drop my kid off, I trust that they're trying, at least trying their best. You know, the hostility is real and it's palpable and it's dangerous. But it is a tiny fraction that stands out on this vast background of sort of boring trust and familiarity. I guess I wonder... If you're telling me these boom and bust cycles of conservative concern about public education are inevitable, it makes me wonder if there's a way to rewire ourselves so that it's less like this. Because the last few years have felt rocky to me. Yeah, I think I think it's a tall order uh, for a couple of reasons. In general, this kind of politics is low-hanging fruit. It's easy to get a lot of attention. It's easy to get a lot of likes and followers, and it's easy to get a lot of votes by manipulating people's fears about their children. As long as we've got ambitious politicians and anxious parents, uh, that recipe is going to lead to this kind of politics being almost impossible for um, you know uh, politicians to avoid. Adam, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Wonderful to talk with you. Adam Lutz is a professor of education and history at Binghamton University. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out how. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.